This is Fine Tuning, an examination of Mark Lewison's Tune In. An original series by Another Kind of Mind. Welcome to Fine Tuning, Episode 5. This episode takes a look at Leader Lennon, the main character of Tune In and the hero of the story. Now, before we get started, let us be clear we are not disputing that John was the leader of the Quarrymen and leader of the early Beatles. And we feel it's perfectly appropriate to acknowledge and explore this dynamic, as long as it's done with nuance and with respect for the other Beatles, all their relationships, and the fluid power structure of the band. Does TuneIn do that? We think not. Instead, John Lennon is consistently and emphatically portrayed as preternaturally powerful since infancy, the eternal top dog, and always recognized as such by his grateful friends, very much including the other Beatles. John is not just a band leader, he is the leader of every situation in his life at every moment. Now, we'll be honest, many of the passages from TuneIn we discuss in this episode are just kind of silly and funny, so we're going to have a bit of fun with them. But still, we invite you to ask yourself, does TuneIn describe John's leadership in a normal way? Or do things start to get a little weird? Where things get serious is when TuneIn argues that Lennon's leadership, and by extension ownership, of the Beatles is simply the natural order eternal and irrefutable, and that this entitles Lennon to special treatment and gives him the right to make unilateral decisions, whether the other Beatles like it or not. In addition to the 39 references to John as a leader or as leading, he is also, concerningly, described with the associated words dominance supremacy, authority, power, and force, a further 14 times. These words are used far too frequently to be merely neutral observations, 
and they are incongruously dropped into unrelated scenes too often to be casual word choices. Instead, John's preeminence is clearly the central tenet of TuneIn. Its most fundamental belief, a carefully crafted message shoehorned into every crevice of the book. Now, we will not be reading all the examples of this messaging. What we will do instead is highlight the most salient passages and discuss them. We'll examine Tunin's presentation of John's leadership in the schoolyard, among his friends, and finally within the quarrymen, the Beatles, and all the iterations in between. We will present a variety of examples of what Tunin defines as leadership from the actually relevant, to the clearly gratuitous, to the utterly nonsensical. Is TuneIn's admiration for and hyper-focus on John's leadership justified? Is it appropriate to use words like dominance, order, and power, unironically and uncritically, to support a theory of inherent hierarchy between human beings? Tunin will argue that this allegedly rigid hierarchy is the most essential component of the Beatles' interpersonal dynamic. Not creativity, or inclusiveness, or partnership, or collaboration. Certainly not love. No. The most essential component of the Beatles is John Lennon's dominance and supremacy. And we totally understand if this sounds like an exaggeration on our part, but it definitely is not. And so, let's begin. Yeah. From page 79. In August 1948, John went up into the junior section at Dovedale Road School. The infants had been mixed gender, but now it was boys only, and John wasn't slow or shy in ensuring a necessary dominance, fighting whoever wouldn't listen to reason. So I just need to ask, why is dominance necessary? Is it common for a leader in a group of little boys to emerge? Yes, I, I think so. But is it necessary? <laughs> Not in my opinion. Yeah. Well, and being a leader doesn't necessarily entail dominance. Yeah, that's true. Organization mm -hmm. and nurturing our leadership skills also. Mm -hmm. Kind of funny to me, the implication that John's dominance was the reasonable solution <laughs> in all situations. Like, submission to John was just logical. Yes. I, I mean, maybe this is tongue-in-cheek? Well, it sounds tongue-in-cheek. Like, if I wrote this, it would definitely be tongue-in-cheek. Fighting right. whoever wouldn't listen to reason, <laughs> as defined by eight-year-old John. So it sounds tongue-in-cheek, but considering what's in the rest of the book, I tend to think it's not. I tend to think it's not as well. I, th I think this is sincere. All right, so from page 86, more of Teenage John and his gang. 
This was the John Lennon of larks and dares, scraps and scrapes, games and guffaws, everything for laughs. There was plenty of boyish cruelty, verbal more than physical, though John was never shy to use his fists. And it was great to be in his gang, even when he forced you to steal. John was now petty thieving whenever and wherever he could, and all the gang had to do it. If there was trouble, though, if a Lenin plan went awry, he had the knack of disappearing. The gang members would turn around, and their leader would be gone. <laughs> so I do, I do enjoy the little roast there. Sure. But again, I, I don't think he's being facetious by throwing leader in there. Like he's. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, that's an interesting interpretation of leadership. <laughs> well, if he's first out the door, then he's, again, he's he's leading. Okay. Well, can we talk about it was great to be in his gang, even when he forced you to steal? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. There's a persistent admiration for teenage values and social dynamics that I have to say I find pretty tiresome. Yeah. I mean, I'm not against shoplifting at all. Like, I shoplifted when I was a kid. Most people shoplift at least a few times when they're kids. I have never. <laughs> for the record, Daphne has never shoplifted. <laughs> Speak for yourself. <laughs> You delinquent. <laughs> it's hard to imagine having a biography written on me and somebody bragging about my shoplifting. Well, or or saying that it was great how you forced your friends to do it too. Like there's a difference between <laughs> doing it yourself and being the dick who's like, prove you're brave enough to shoplift. Yeah, exactly. And then and then beyond that, there's an adult writer saying that that was great. I mean, well, I think what I think what Lewis is trying to say is that that was a that was a price of doing business. If you wanted to hang out with John, which every boy desperately wanted to, so they were happy to do whatever dumb stuff he told them to do. Yeah, but that's not great. That's just <laughs> the way that it's presented with such admiration is a little weird. Yeah. Page 197 to 198. Ivan Vaughn had known John since infancy. In some ways, they were markedly different characters, especially in the way they applied themselves at school. But Ivan admired his gang leader's many talents and paid full respect. Okay. I'd prefer to read that from Ivan rather than from Lewison. Well, in the phrasing, paid full respect... Like, it sounds like Ivan's a provincial paying tribute to Caesar. And it, it was a big disappointment for me that TuneIn didn't include how Ivan Vaughn went to bat for Paul to John's face. Like, when <laughs> Ivan showed up at a rehearsal and was just indignant. Like, why have you not invited him into the <laughs> band yet? Like, Colin Hanton describes Ivan as actually getting angry on Paul's behalf, which is delightful well it's hard to imagine a more relevant anecdote right in this book makes room for all kinds of minutiae so to me this is a 
peculiar editing choice. We'll share that quote in full and discuss it in a future episode, by the way. 160 to 161 about the early quarrymen. And John was the leader, just as he'd been in his every activity since infancy. The only non-grammar schoolboy among them was Colin Hanton, the drummer. He was 18 and joined through Eric Griffiths, but knew to whom he must answer. Says Hanton, John didn't say, I am the leader. He just led, and we just followed him, Colin recalls. There was never any discussion, and it was never a problem. We just assumed John was the leader. He was the singer, and whatever he wanted to sing, we played. Okay, well, that sounds reasonable. He's the lead singer. But this is interesting. So people have to answer to John? And they know it. Yeah. But Colin says there was never any discussion, and it was never a problem, which seems to slightly undercut that assertion doesn't it 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 does yeah well having to answer to john makes it sound like john's like not just a leader but an enforcer and a punisher which i don't see evidence for in colin's quote what do you think about john was the leader just as he'd been in his every activity since infancy his every activity like, we're not making that up. I mean, I guess technically a baby could crawl and another baby could follow that baby. And technically that would be leading. Well, that's true. That's a good point. But the fact remains that we don't have exhaustive camera footage of John from the age of one year up. Correct. Because there is also, the, I mean, there is also the fact that infants it has a different connotation in Britain. Like kindergarten and early grade school is called infant school. Oh, sure. Right. Did he teach the classes? He was like well, a teacher's assistant? I've never read that. Um, I don't think there's any historical evidence to support that. Although, you know, again, Lewis and has done a lot more research. He has access to things that we don't. So you know, maybe he found some pay stubs. Maybe he just means John was always the leader of other children since he was a child. I mean, that's impossible to quantify because we don't have a record of every movement of John's since infancy. So that's literally impossible. Um, and it, it doesn't say, it says every activity. It doesn't say every interaction with other children or every group activity with his peers. It, it says every activity since infancy. All right, from page 17. He'll get you into trouble, son, Jim warned Paul. Parents had been saying that about John Lennon since he was five, and rightly so, because he did. But this hadn't stopped a solid gang of pals intelligent grammar school boys, as Paul McCartney was, idolizing John as their leader, and what high and hysterical times he gave them in return. Okay. No one is quoted in Tune In as calling John their idol, but okay. I checked. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, 
Paul did say he idolized John as a teenager. During his grief rant to Hunter Davies in 1981. More on that later. Uh, in any case, that particular line is not quoted in TuneIn. But I love that John benevolently yes. gives them laughs in return as mm -hmm. as reward for their fealty. I know. He also specifies that John is idolized by intelligent grammar school boys, which is slightly weird because John is also a grammar school boy. Right. And it's normal to have friends from your own school, mm -hmm. right? Like, I'm not sure that that's noteworthy. His friends are his classmates. Right. I think the point is to imply that smart people looked up to John and it is therefore smart to look up to John mm. and like him the best. I see. And also maybe that John was the smartest of the smart people. Well, to brag about the fact that you're friends with your own peers is it's an interesting choice. Um, yeah. The next <laughs> quote we discussed in Shoulder to Shoulder, but let's just revisit it for a moment. Okay. On page 258, all the friendships in John's life were like this. He was the leader, respected and gratefully followed by others. But perhaps for the first time here at college, there was an exception. John found a friend he revered. Being John, his choice was unconventional. Jeff Muhammad was seven years his senior, a tall, bulky, swarthy man with tightly curled hair and sideburns. All right, well, leaving aside Jeff being an unconventional choice for some reason, um, perhaps for the first time John found a friend he revered. The first time, oh, okay. But I'm sorry, all of John's friends gratefully followed him? Gratefully. Mm. I find that actually distasteful. Well, and also writing that for the first time in his life at like age 20, <laughs> John had found a friend he revered makes it sound like he's dipping into the shallowest pool mm -hmm. imaginable. But you just bragged that he was he friends with all these intelligent grammar school boys. I know. Yeah. Okay. I don't know. It, it just seems unnecessary. From page 71, um, talking about John's relationship with his group of friends, Pete Shotton, Nigel Wally, and Ivan Vaughn, tune in writes, John formed them into a gang, four junior reprobates who persistently and sometimes dangerously terrorized the community for years to come. John was leader because he just was it was a position divined through natural unspoken process by force of personality and where necessary by scrapping pete shotton had the brazen guts to constantly challenge this and so became john's best mate john lennon liked to be confronted 
by his code, if he found you were a pushover, he'd push you over. All three boys were younger than John, which was another reason he was the leader. But this demonstrated a further aspect of his unusual character. If you were different, an original thinker, in some way unconventional, age wasn't a particular problem. John's chosen friends were also intelligent, Ivan exceptionally so, and eager to follow their leader wherever he took them. This is a theme that Tunin hits on several times, that John befriends younger boys. I assume this is Lewison's attempt to make John inclusive? Oh yes, yes. This is definitely framed as a major virtue on John's part, that he is generous enough to offer friendship to younger boys. Like, that John sees past age to the true value of the person underneath. Mm, okay. For example, on page 18 in the prologue, we are told, John had long dispensed with one of the taboos of childhood, befriending whoever he liked, even if they were younger. Age didn't matter to John if the friend brought something interesting to the table. That's wild. That's in reference to Paul. Yeah. John has long dispensed with one of those silly childhood taboos. So it wasn't um, even then, something he struggled with when he met Paul. He had already gotten over that mental hurdle. I suppose, although then later it's kind of talked about differently, so, so I'm not entirely sure. Um, on page 236, when John is deciding whether to invite George into the group, Tune in reads, For all Paul's encouragement, the decision whether or not to admit George into the group wasn't his, and wasn't obvious. John was several months beyond 17, George a few days shy of 15. A chasm. It was already big of John to befriend Paul, 20 months his junior, but to add his friend, 8 months younger still, was really something to consider. I'm sorry, it was big of John to befriend yes. Paul? yes so john is doing paul a favor by being his friend is that yes. what he just wrote yeah wow that is a lot to process <laughs> that <laughs> wow really again i think it's fair to ask if perhaps lewison is being a little facetious here like he's writing as if the age gap is a big deal because he's channeling their attitude about it. But on the other hand, since he seemed genuinely admiring earlier when talking about John, quote, having long dispensed with the childhood taboo, I think he is also being, you know, I, I tend to think he's also being sincere when he says it was big of John to befriend Paul. But it's possible he's being ironic i i don't know well i guess but it's kind of a consistent tone throughout so i definitely think he's being sincere mm -hmm. and i assume what we're meant to take away from all of that is that john was nobly democratic and unprejudiced yes but because he went there and he argues so vehemently that this is a virtue on John's part. I just want to point out that John was old for his grade, which right. is a reason why he's older than all of these other kids. 
Yeah. So having been born in October, John would always have been one of the oldest kids in his class. Considering how much Lewison focuses on this, it's weird that he never really points that out. Right? He It's definitely on his radar because he points out that Paul was one of the youngest in his class. The bigger problem for me with this framing is that Tunin is saying that John chooses his friends based purely on their character, intelligence, originality, talent, etc. Um, if that were true, if John's friendship circle was a pure meritocracy, then you'd expect some of his friends to be older than him, right? Like, just by law of averages. If all he's looking for is the yes. quality of the person, some of those people are going to be older than him. Well, I definitely expect that. Yeah, the thing is, though, that literally none of them were. Pete Shotton is 10 months younger. Nigel Wally is 8 months younger. Ivan Vaughn is 20 months younger. Obviously, he's the same exact same age as Paul. So Paul's also 20 months younger. And then George is 29 months younger. Hmm. And further, until Stuart Sutcliffe joins, or Tommy Moore, if you're going to count him, <laughs> um, aside until they join, only one of the other quarrymen was ever older than John. Colin Hanton huh. was 22 months older. Duff Lowe was 18 months younger. Eric Griffiths was born the same month. He's a few weeks younger. And then Len Gary is 15 months younger. Hmm. So yeah, that's definitely a statistical strange occurrence if John is just, is if it's pure meritocracy. To me, you know what? It sounds like John likes being friends with younger boys. Maybe because that makes it easier for him to be the leader maybe younger boys are more inclined to let him be boss as he said was his goal and then later in the book the three friends which tunin specifically says you know surprisingly john actually looked up to these <laughs> friends those <laughs> those three friends are Stuart sutcliffe jeff muhammad and ringo Starr, all of whom are older than john so this whole framing of like age didn't even matter to John. He was he was beyond that. It's stupid. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this is one of the more uh questionable theories of Tunin. There's just there's no way to massage this into any sort of virtue. Either it's coincidental because John is one of the oldest kids in his grade and so yeah. The other kids in his grade are going to be younger, younger. than him. <laughs> Or he specifically likes befriending younger boys, not older boys. You'd think one would sneak in there. <laughs> Have you ever heard anybody say, you know that bully? All his friends tend to be younger. <laughs> what a yeah, right? generous attribute that is. <laughs> it's like so ridiculous. Thank you. Yes, thank you. And like, if this was something that lewis and just floated one sentence about like we wouldn't be pushing back on it this hard but like we said you know he reiterates it several times yeah. <laughs> like it's a it's a full-blown theory of his it is well, well and I, then there's the fact that uh, this is obviously in stark contrast to paul who's obsessed with age according to tune in uh, absolutely obsessed with it hmm okay 
So the book kind of talks out of both sides of its mouth, so to speak. Like it's natural to look up to older people, except in John's case, it has nothing to do with that. Or at least that's only a small part of it. The vastly more important element, of course, is John's natural leadership. Well, and also this is a huge point in John's favor that he was egalitarian enough to not care about being the oldest rather than, for example, it being to Paul and George's credit for being mature or talented or cool enough or interesting enough or whatever to run with the big kid. I mean, he sort of acknowledges that in the prologue, but he does not emphasize or reiterate it throughout the book the way he does John's generosity. Mm. On page 18, Lewison tells us that Paul was concerned with the age gap. And then he gives his opinion on what John saw in Paul at the time. He writes, As for Paul, their first meeting six months earlier, he'd felt too young to be John's friend, the wrong side of the cusp. He'd impressed the hell out of John, though, and now, invited in, he wasn't going to let it slip. Paul would be, and was, sharp, sure, and impressive enough to hold John's attention. Okay, okay so the, the problem with this is that at this point, Lewison is describing Paul and John writing songs together. So Paul's in the band. He's been in the band for six months. They are performing side by side on stage, sharing the limelight, sharing lead vocals, and writing together. So they're partners at this point. Yes. And in my opinion, that makes it pretty disrespectful to say that Paul's role was merely to hold John's attention. John has invited Paul to be his professional equal partner. He's doing more than holding John's attention. I know that Lewison thinks that just hold, holding John Lennon's attention, wow, what an accomplishment. Yeah, like it, that's it. That's a compliment. Yeah, I I imagine Lewison would regard that as a huge compliment, but in my opinion, it's actually inappropriately dismissive. I also find it interesting that Tunin quotes Paul as saying, "Once I got to know John, it all changed. I went off in a completely new direction." Mm. That's from Hunter Davies, but. Tunin does not include John's corollary quote from the same book. John said, that was the day, the day that I met Paul, that it started moving. Those quotes are perfect bookends, and they establish exactly. that they each came into each other's lives and, and changed the other's life forever. It's not just a matter of John changing Paul's life. It was mutual. And as a final example, here's what Tunin says on page 425. It was to John and Stu's credit that they had no problem with Paul and George attaching themselves to their social life. A generosity that gave the younger ones knowledge and experiences beyond their years. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I don't, I don't really have a problem with this. 
Well, did Paul and George not give anything in return? From page 196 about Paul watching the quarrymen on stage for the first time, having been invited by Ivan. Here then were Ivan's friends, and right off, the singer had it. He looked strong and assertive, clearly the leader, cool in his checked red and white shirt. <laughs> so... Yeah, I definitely, I remember Paul describing John looking pretty cool mm -hmm. uh, in his check shirt and his slightly curly hair. That's what I remember him saying from Anthology. Yes, yes, he's said it many times. Yeah, I don't, I cannot recall him ever using the words strong, assertive, or leader. I don't either. I mean, I'm not a complete encyclopedia of everything Paul said, so maybe he <laughs> said it. I don't remember him saying that, and he's not quoted directly. So I assume strong and assertive are tune-ins editorializing. Let me point something else out. On page 350, tune-in writes, Sin observed how Paul, quote, tried hard to impress John, posing and strutting with his hair slicked back to prove that he was cool because John was very much the leader, unquote. Now that was taken from Sin's book, John, published in 2005. But she also writes in the very next paragraph, as the two became closer, this changed. John recognized Paul's musical talent and that he could learn from him. Paul responded by becoming more confident, and they came to share decisions and eventually ran the group together. Okay. Uh, now, Sin isn't specific on how quickly this transformation took place, but she also writes on the previous page that, by the time I got to know Paul, he and John had formed a close partnership they had agreed that any songs they wrote, together or separately, would be by Lennon and McCartney. It was as though, even then, they had a strong sense that their success depended on the connection between them. Hmm. Now, Sin isn't clear on precisely when she got to know Paul, but she started dating John in 1958, so I'd guess within a couple of months or so. Mm -hmm. and by that time she says john and paul had already formed a close partnership and a strong sense that their success depended on their own connection but as we said tudin uses cynthia's line about john being the leader and doesn't report allude to or foreshadow in any way that their relationship was actually much deeper and more equal than that Right. According to Cynthia. <laughs> yeah. Well, and it's not a, even a matter of foreshadowing. Like if he doesn't want to foreshadow, that's fine. But TuneIn covers the Beatles all the way to December 1962. So it could have, and in my opinion, should have revisited the quote at a later point. Yeah. Cynthia wrote that this change happened when John recognized Paul's musical talent and that he could learn from him. Paul responded by becoming more confident and they came to share decisions. 
So I, you know, obviously John recognized Paul's talent and started learning from him very early on in their relationship. As Tunin itself has reported, i.e. definitely before 1963. Yeah. Yet Tunin never revisits this quote. And I'm always a little suspicious when only the first half of this type of quote gets reported. If someone says, it was one way at such and such time, but <laughs> then it changed, yeah. you know, you know, to me, it's poor methodology to only report half of quotes like that. And this is not the only time TuneIn does that. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, Sin is not a Beatle, but that's her perspective. And she is quoted numerous times in TuneIn. From page 27. From the outset, John and Paul settled on Lennon-McCartney as a partnership with that name order. Lennon came before McCartney alphabetically, and he was almost two years older. And it was his invitation, and surpassing any other consideration, it was simply the way of things. John always came first. While equal in terms of contribution, Paul had to accept that one of them was just a little more equal than the other. So I'm going to go ahead and assume that Lewis is not deliberately comparing John to Napoleon, the two-faced megalomaniacal pig of Animal Farm, writing that John always came first and was more equal doesn't strike me as critical of John at all. This passage presents problems for me. Because number one, where is Lewis in getting this information? Does he have a quote from either John or Paul to support this? That they pretended to be equal but weren't? If that is in fact his point because that's a really bold thing to definitively claim without support yeah and he doesn't offer any quotes so i'm assuming he doesn't have them and again i've never read anything that supports that so strange thing to write and then also considering the fact that john and paul negotiated to reverse the name order on the first pressings of the beetle records I think it's fallacious to write from the outset, John and Paul settled on Lennon-McCartney as a partnership with that name order. Like it obviously wasn't settled. You could say that from the outset, they adopted Lennon-McCartney or they used Lennon-McCartney to the extent that Paul wrote it in his notebooks. Yeah, but they weren't using it professionally. Well, and yeah, when they did start using it professionally, for please, please me, they they switched it. Right. So if it was settled, it was in 1963. Right. Also, by writing John always came first, while equal in terms of contribution, Paul had to accept that one of them was just a little more equal than the other. By writing that, you are saying that the Lennon-McCartney name credit means, in essence, that John is more equal than Paul. Which is completely uh, unsubstantiated. 
It's just false. It was a 50-50 partnership. Continuing from the same page. Second billing wasn't in Paul's nature, though. Paul accepted it from his fairground hero and positively no one else. Okay. So we know from elsewhere in the book and also from various interviews that Lewis has done that he puts a lot of stock in this fairground hero quote from Paul. Yes. I just feel like we have to remind people of the context here. That comment was said very soon after John's murder, off the record, as far as Paul was aware, while Paul was in mourning, looking back with grief and love and everything else. To take it as as if this is Paul's primary vision of John in his own mind. Just seems a little misguided to me. I do think it's valid to include or discuss the quote. I just find its usage here for this purpose questionable. Mm -hmm. And I have to wonder if Paul had died tragically and John had said some over-the-top grandiose stuff about Paul during a grief-filled off-the-record rant, would Lewison be using it so liberally and without context? Now, Paul did say that when they started, I was the little guy. John was the big guy. I grew to be his equal. It made him insecure. He always was, really. So to the point that their relationship does start out with an age difference that matters to them because they're so young, mm -hmm. it's, it's fine to present it that way. But maybe if there hadn't been that age gap they never would have been able to team up you could just as easily make the case that insisting on having his name first was a feature of insecurity on john's part which either paul genuinely just didn't mind or care or that he chose to let slide because why not one of their names has to go first it's literally 50 50 or because he recognized that insecurity on john's part true either consciously or, or unconsciously. John's name coming first is something that doesn't change or even reflect the level of contribution, as Lewison points out. But in some way, it makes John feel more secure. As a matter of fact, in the very same interview, the Hunter Davies grief rant from 81, Paul calls John insecure and jealous. So... Hmm. That's another take that is at least as well supported by the actual data. Mm -hmm. And I don't even need tune in to do that. Yeah, to make that case. Right. I just think it's inappropriate to conclude instead that John was more equal than Paul, specifically in a songwriting context, and then present that to the reader as fact. And it would even be one thing to argue that that was the reality of the situation, but he's not stopping there. He said Paul had to accept. So he's saying that Paul agreed to this. Mm -hmm. We'll unpack this a bit more in a future episode, but this is the first of three times that Tunin uses the phrase, Paul had to accept being lesser or second to John in some way. It is also used on page 1058 and 806. 
Yeah, this is definitely what he's saying. He's saying that they're not really equal and that this inequality is what Paul signed up for. Mm-hmm. And that that was as it should be. That was fit yeah. and just. Yes. That is what makes that passage very insidious to me. He doesn't even draw attention to it like a big thing. He's just like, this is how it was. And what am I basing that on? I can't tell you. Well, and I, I, I don't need to. I mean, it's just obvious. John I mean, knows it. Paul knows it. Everyone knows it. Everyone agrees to it. Even though they said it was 50-50, even though legally it's 50-50, even though they share the money and the credit and all that sort of stuff, we know it's bullshit. And deep down, they know it's bullshit too. There's no way that Paul McCartney <laughs> signed off on that. No. You cannot convince me that there is any way that Paul McCartney or John Lennon would ever corroborate such a thing. No. And they didn't. And you'd need at least one quote from each to corroborate saying something like that. All right. So on page 19, in describing John and Paul's early friendship, Lewison describes Paul as charming, sharp, mentally strong, and rarely outmaneuvered. John saw it all and welcomed it. Though he had to be dominant, he respected no one who didn't stand up to him. Paul did, despite being 20 months his junior. But John also knew that if Paul ever challenged his natural supremacy, at least before he was ready to abdicate it, he'd see him off. Okay. Wow. So I think this piece of writing here most clearly encapsulates Tunin's worldview. Yes. John has natural supremacy over Paul. Which must not be challenged. I mean, this is probably the most transparent passage of the book in terms of how Lewison sees the Beatles. Yeah. John is naturally superior. The implication yeah. here is that Paul being superior would be unnatural. Mm -hmm. So we're once again talking about the natural order of hierarchy yep. and dominance. Yep. John is able to willingly cede power if he so chooses in this scenario. But Lewison evidently believes that Paul would be unable to naturally assume a position of power, even though they're equal. But I guess not really. I mean, that's kind of terrible. <laughs> Seriously. Like, he's kind yeah. of shitting on their partnership. Mm. Like, how dare you? You're saying one party is a little more equal than the other. You're saying it wasn't an equal partnership. Correct. Correct. I mean, no math major. <laughs> <laughs> Things are either equal or they're not. Yeah, I know that much. I remember that from math class. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah here's a super interesting and revealing quote from john about leadership <laughs> this is from hunter davies book which is liberally quoted in tune in but oh, not yes. this particular passage okay paul was telling me the other day says john that he and i used to have rows about who was the leader i can't remember them it had stopped mattering by then talking about hamburg 
I wasn't so determined to be the leader at all costs. If I did argue, it was just out of pride. <laughs> John arguing for the sake of arguing? And saying that whoever Surely was the leader not. had stopped mattering to him by Hamburg. Yeah. That's an actual quote from John. Not only does it greatly undermine how important John's leadership was to him, if he says he'd stopped caring by Hamburg, it also undermines the idea that Paul was unable or unwilling to challenge John's leadership. Because according to Paul, he and John would row over it. Which, for whatever it's worth, Alan Williams also confirmed. He said in 2005 that in Hamburg, Paul was beginning to challenge John for the leadership of the group. And yet John did not see him off, as Lewison told us he would if Paul ever challenged him. Like, it's literally the same word, challenge. Yep. You have someone there who said that Paul did challenge him. How can you say that John knew he would see him off? If that attitude of John changed partway through the book, then you should have told us that. Us. Yeah, I agree. And John is reporting as early as 1967 that him fighting back was only to save face. Which again, totally undermines this natural dominance and leadership theory. Mm -hmm. And we understand that John contradicted himself more than a few times over the course of his life. So we get that it can be difficult to parse out the reality sometimes. Yes. And we're not arguing that John's leadership wasn't real or didn't exist. Just that it isn't immutable and absolute. Here's another recollection of John's from Hunter Davies. John has a clear image of his first day at Quarry Bank. This is John. I looked at all the hundreds of new kids and thought, Christ, I'll have to fight all my way through this lot, having just made it at Dovedale. There were some real heavies there. The first fight I got in, I lost. I lost my nerve when I got really hurt. Not that there was much real fighting. I did a lot of swearing and shouting, then got a quick punch. If there was a bit of blood, then you packed it in. After that, if I thought someone could punch harder than me, I said, okay, we'll have wrestling instead. <laughs> <laughs> That's cute. <laughs> I was aggressive because I wanted to be popular. I wanted to be the leader. It seemed more attractive than just being one of the toffees. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I wanted everybody to do what I told him to do, to laugh at my jokes and let me be the boss. Okay, so John is admitting that as a child, he wanted to be leader because he thought it would make him popular. Yes. And make people laugh at his jokes and he wanted them to let him be the boss. Yes. He is certainly not saying, people just made me leader everywhere I went. My natural supremacy just took over. <laughs> yes and the crowd parted before me no he's saying oh man i have to do this again that's very different from john being the lion king held up on the <laughs> rock and all the animals bow to him since he was an infant like that is not what john is describing and he says that by hamburg he wasn't so determined to be leader at any cost and that fighting for leadership was out of pride 
which by the way i think is a huge admission and pretty mature and self-reflective of a 26 year old john but none of that's factored in to tune in no there's no there's no nuance lewison does actually use a single line from this larger quote so this is how he abridges that quote from john and tune in from page 97 john had formed another gang an inside school outfit to run in parallel with his Vale Road posse, and he was determined to set an example, saying, I wanted everybody to do what I told them to do, to laugh at my jokes, and let me be the boss. And then a classmate of John's describes him as the chief clown. <laughs> Lewison's aggrandizing framing of this makes no sense. John was determined to set an example by telling everyone what to do. Like, I mean, first of all, that doesn't like that literally does not make sense. Determined <laughs> to set an true. example. <laughs> if he's going to set an example of that, that means he's going to do what he tells himself, himself to, to do. To do. Yeah. Like, <laughs> so it doesn't even compute. But more importantly, it's aggrandizing John when we don't need to and kind of shouldn't. You know what, though? You know what example John Lennon did set? Which I would love to see Beatle authors start following? Hmm. His mature recognition in his 20s that this youthful need of his to be dominant and have his name first and be the oldest and argue out of pride, that those things were born out of insecurity, not strength. But in tune in, those behaviors and needs are presented as strengths, genuine strengths. But people, real talk. If someone feels a need to throw their weight around and bluster and cut other people down and get the leader badge at any cost, like if someone needs to always be seen by others as strong, is that usually a sign of genuine strength? Come on now. I'm sorry, this framing of John is so juvenile. It seems so incredibly juvenile to me. We've got the full Davies quote. We just read it to you. John himself is mature and philosophical about the obvious reality behind this behavior that he used to exhibit. Yeah. He got there as a yeah. young man still. Like, that is actually impressive. Yes. Let's talk about that. Pete Shotton, who was obviously quoted numerous times in Tune In, tells Hunter Davies in 1967, It's great that John's so happy. He spent his whole childhood and all his youth trying all the time to be number one. Mm. He had to be leader at all times, either by fighting yes. everyone or, if they were big, by undermining <laughs> them by abuse or sarcasm. Today, John is not trying to prove anything. He doesn't have to be number one. That's why he's happy. Yes. You can see the change. He used to walk like this at school and at the art college, all hunched up, his eyes and head down like a scared rabbit, driven into a corner, but ready to lash out. You can see it in all the old pictures of him. Now he can smile in pictures. Oh, my God. <laughs> Hello? Yeah, all of this toxic masculinity stuff 
caused John enormous pain in his life and caused the other people around him enormous pain. And he knew that. Well, and he told and us that. Why can't we respect that? I'm serious. There's a, like a thoughtful, tender-hearted person under that uh, adorable yep. scowl, you know, <laughs> to paraphrase yeah. Paul McCartney, it was a lovely suit of armor. Yes. It's yeah. a beautiful suit. I love it too. But you yeah. have to realize that was just a suit of armor. Yeah. Like, stop buffing that fucking suit. All right, Daphne, are you ready to talk about the chain? The chain? Listeners, we're going to jump ahead a little bit to read you this passage. From page 1007. Neil Aspinall would often emphasize, sometimes finger-proddingly, that there was one essential key to understanding the Beatles' psychological constitution, as true in 1962 as it would be in the 21st century. He called it the chain. John brought in Paul, and Paul brought in George, and George brought in Ringo. John, Paul, George, and Ringo doesn't just trip nicely off the tongue. It was, is, a natural order, and connections of great intricacy wend within and without its links. That is, that is a viewpoint. He has just told us this is his thesis, one essential key understanding the Beatles' psychological constitution now, then, forever. And it's the name order. That is his opinion. And that's well, what he's proceeding from. And there is nothing on this earth or in the universe that would ever change his point of view. Right. You can't change universal constants exactly this is scientific it's natural <laughs> order yeah i mean there is no actual quote from neil not that i'm disputing that neil prodded his fingers or called the name order the chain i'm not suggesting that that's untrue i'm just pointing out yeah. that all the stuff about multiple centuries and psychological constitution and connections of great intricacy those are probably lewison's words Agreed. On page 732, Lewison writes that the chain is the lineal imperative and that it was a hierarchy one had to keep in mind. And to me, this is the strongest evidence that Lewison does not intend to take his foot off the leader Lenin pedal in his future books or to start giving Paul credit for becoming an equal co-leader. That does not seem to be the plan. Because Lewison calls the chain a hierarchy and writes that it is the one essential key to understanding the Beatles' psychological constitution as true in 1962 as it would be in the 21st century. This hierarchy with John at the top, is eternal and all-important. That's pretty unambiguous. Can I just say, I'm very uncomfortable with all this language. Natural order, hierarchy, supremacy, dominance. Mm -hmm. 
this never goes anywhere good. You shouldn't right, talk about exactly. people. You really shouldn't. I mean, you shouldn't use words like supremacy, dominance, hierarchy, natural order. Yeah, exactly. It's not good. Especially when the chain perfectly aligns with John, Paul, George, and Ringo's descending class status. Mm-hmm. Coincidentally or not. <laughs> or not. And... I really do think it's antithetical to what the Beatles stood for. Yes. The Beatles, Uh, including John. Do I believe that they were raised with those kind of beliefs and Mm -hmm. that kind of traditional thinking? Yeah, I do. But the whole reason that they were so culturally significant and continue to appeal to subsequent generations is because they represented something better than the old way. And if the tone and treatment of this topic were different in TuneIn, I would think, well, maybe that's what we're being set up for. Like, maybe there's going to be a payoff. And then John Lennon realized he didn't have to be dominant. And he threw off the shackles of expected, you know, the trappings of toxic masculinity or whatever. But the way that it's presented, I do not think that that's where we're headed. If it is where we're headed, then it it doesn't make sense of... Right. large swaths of the book because the right. book doesn't set you up for that i mean no it seems to be condoning and in favor of this natural supremacy here's another mention of the chain from page 238 to 239 george's joining also gave the relationships a whole new complexity the chain john brought in paul paul brought in george would never be unimportant or forgotten in all the years to come Paul, to his credit, had recognized that young George was hip enough to risk introducing to John. On the other hand, while John was automatically revered by both of them, Paul has said it was teenage hero worship, Paul continued to remind George of their own age gap, that nine months younger status. George had no one to lord it over, nor did he bother to jostle shoulder to shoulder with John and Paul on the front line. But he did expect, and when necessary, demand, to be considered an equal, and was. In this group, John got his way by being boss and shouting louder, as the others said of him several times. Paul got it by charm or calculation. George got it almost unnoticed, but got it all the same. Okay, well, first of all, teenage hero worship... That one's on Paul, because he said it. True. However, that phrase was pulled from the same grief-stricken rant to Hunter Davies in 1981. Uh, Why don't we just read the full quote for proper context? Okay. Mm -hmm. Paul said, In the beginning, he was sort of a fairground hero. He was the big lad riding the dodgems. And we thought he was great. We were younger, me and George, and that mattered. It was teenage hero worship. Paul then goes on to talk about his first impression of John at the fate. So we're not disputing the characterization of the earliest days of Beatledom. This is how Paul describes the beginning. Uh What we're disputing is that this first impression of teenage John 
would never be unimportant or forgotten in all the years to come. Well, and, you know, even if we are going to assign great significance to this emotional off-the-record rant, then look at Paul's actual words. He is clearly making the point that this was their immature, childish dynamic. So I finally looked up Dodrums. Mm-hmm. It's bumper cars. The big guy on the bumper cars. <laughs> <laughs> he's he's speaking as an adult about being a child, and he's using childhood analogies for a reason. Yeah. We were dumb, and John yeah. was the dumbest. Yeah. And therefore, we thought he We were very best. impressed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the sheer intensity of his dumbness shone like a beacon to our dumb teenage eyes. John was the oldest guy in the bumper car ring. <laughs> yeah. It's immature. It does not mean I saw John as my adult superior officer forever. Also, the big guy on the bumper cars is usually a douche. <laughs> Taking advantage of the fact that he's older and more experienced in order to run into the little kids. <laughs> <laughs> So Paul did say that, but he has also described himself as John's big brother several times. <laughs> and he's called John his child and a baby. A baby. Yes, a lovely little baby. John was a baby. <laughs> a lovely little baby, John was. Uh, he's also called John an orange cream chocolate. So... <laughs> but yeah, you know, sometimes you have nostalgia for with somebody you really love sometimes you have nostalgia for what a certain way yes yeah. yes like a certain yeah. way that you that you thought of them at some that you could never really think of them again yeah so for tune in to assert that the big guy on the bumper cars is how paul saw john <laughs> forevermore i think is just silly it's silly and not not to state the obvious, but Paul can still love John and have great affection for him, even after those rose-colored fairground glasses come off. In fact, I'm sure he loved him even more as their relationship matured and as they matured. Well, and also if their first impressions of each other set their dynamic in stone, then John would forever see paul as a glamorous rock star like elvis <laughs> the image that would be set in stone forever would be john lennon in 1957 watching paul perform after he first joined the band mesmerized and commenting to eric griffiths that paul he's got something hasn't he <laughs> <laughs> that eric griffiths quote is that in tune in <laughs> no but Tunin does assert that George was considered an equal. Huh. And yet Paul had to accept that John was just a little more equal than he was. So George is an equal, but Paul isn't? I Maybe this is just George's one equality token. Paul got his in the prologue. I George see. Like, yeah, so like one instance of lip service 
to equality, and now Tunin can go back to the hierarchy. Yeah. We cannot accuse Lewison of not saying that they were equals because he, he said it one time a piece for both. Yeah. And then spent the rest of the book undermining that. Yeah. Returning to what is included in Tunin, Lewison writes, Paul continued to remind George of their own age gap. However, he just told us that the chain would never be unimportant or forgotten in all the years to come. So if that's true, mm. if the chain has such incredible significance, Paul does have authority over George, right? According to the chain. And Lewison thinks it's literally the most important thing about the Beatles. If that's the case, wouldn't Paul be in the right to constantly remind George of the hierarchy? Yeah, the hierarchy that one had to keep in mind. Especially in conversations. So from the passage we just read, Lewison writes, to Paul's credit, he'd recognized George's sufficient hipness. <laughs> but on the other hand he reminded george of their own age gap so obviously if there is credit on the one hand there's some mm. sort of personal failure on the other lewison tells us that paul lords his age over george multiple times in tune in oh yeah not describing multiple occasions or events or using multiple quotes from various sources the book just periodically reminds us that Paul did this. Page 74 contains the only actual quote, and it's from Paul. Lewison describes George and Paul's friendship this way. Establishing even so much as a rough date for when they first talked is impossible, but recognizing each other's school uniform, they did. Being close to each other in age, we talked, Paul confirms, Although I tended to talk down to him because he was a year younger. Page 141. Paul and George's friendship was not a perfect fit. Paul had a need to remind George one way or another, and often without much subtlety, that he was nine months older, ensuring George didn't forget who held the aces. Is there a footnote for that? no okay how does he know that it was done often without much subtlety then i don't know okay on page 362 about hamburg george had to process more reminders about being nine months younger from paul then on page eight Age was an important yardstick for Paul, and first impressions were always the ones that stuck. He looked up to John because he was older, and he looked and talked down to George because he was younger. Okay, now, is this age thing between George and Paul real? Yes, of because course. George laughs about it in anthology, <laughs> saying, mm -hmm. oh, to this day, he's older than me, right? <laughs> yeah. And also, we have a direct quote from Paul. Mm -hmm. However, 
it was also a thing with John. Yes. John famously said in the Lennon Remembers interview that George is 10 years younger than me <laughs> or some shit. <laughs> oh, that is not in TuneIn. But TuneIn does acknowledge John's reticence about George's age with a different Lennon Remembers quote on page 237. John says, He was a kid who played guitar and he was a friend of Paul's. I didn't dig him on first sight. George looked even younger than Paul. And Paul looked about 10 with his baby face. <laughs> he came round once and asked me to go to the pictures with him, but I pretended I was busy. That's <laughs> about George. Yeah, this is about George. I couldn't be bothered with him. He used to follow me around like a bloody kid, hanging around all the time. It took me years to come around to him to start considering him an equal. Hmm. That's actually a mashup of two different sources, Lennon Remembers and Hunter Davies. And Lewison does report that, but then he immediately undercuts it with this. Despite this frank, if uncharitable, purge of his feelings, John did want George in the group, mm. seeing not only guitar skills, but other attributes. And then Lewison opines about George's attributes. <laughs> he was cool in italics he dressed to shock he was always honest he stood up for himself and then there's some compliments from paul george was cocky had a great sense of humor etc mm -hmm. which is fun to read for sure then on the same page lewison writes that john was correct to see idolatry in george's attitude and as we discussed, he praises John profusely and repeatedly for befriending George in the first place. So again, this is an attitude both John and Paul have, being condescending about George's age. But let's look at how Tudin represents them. Paul gets repeatedly admonished for it. John gets called Frank, if uncharitable, once. And then lots of praise about being generous and open-minded. Yeah. <laughs> so somehow the same behavior manages to be a flaw in Paul, but a virtue in John. Interesting. Remember Cynthia's book that we read from earlier? Cynthia also writes, George was the kid who tagged along. He was always serious, and his shy, toothy grin only ever flickered for a moment before it disappeared. He was quiet and seemed troubled as he trailed behind John and Paul, deferring to them even though he was a fantastic guitar player. They tolerated him because he was good, but they patronized and often ignored him when they were absorbed in something together. Oh, no kidding. And this pattern, according to Cynthia, started pretty early started more or less right away with john and paul and continued as we know until the last moment of the beatles so i find it super curious that tune in doesn't set up this dynamic it's only interested in portraying paul as patronizing to george but not john 
What am I missing? Well, maybe, maybe, maybe Paul's supremacy is coincidental rather than natural. So it's unbecoming of him to point it out. Whereas with John, since it comes naturally and is just a more supreme form of supremacy, it's okay for him to take it and get as much out of it as he can. Okay, well, uh, full disclosure, I don't subscribe to the chain philosophy. I don't <laughs> believe in it. So I'm a skeptic as far as that goes. Um, but I'm just trying to understand because it's extremely important to Lewis in it. And he argues in Tune In that it should be extremely important to the reader because yes, it's fundamental to understanding the Beatles. So again, I don't understand why, if that's the case, Paul doesn't have natural dominion over George. And why wouldn't he be allowed to tell George what to do all the time? Or does the chain only apply to John pulling Paul down a peg like only he could, as Lewison wrote in the prologue? Is it really just John being at the top of the pyramid that's important? Because I don't remember Lewison ever suggesting that it was a lineal imperative that George or Pete or Ringo answer to Paul. Well, maybe maybe the flowchart is more complicated than Lewis and has time to explain to us. Okay, sure. Let's move on to democracy. Oddly enough, in Tune In, John's leadership is not often bolstered by concrete examples of decision-making. It's much more often the sort of nebulous examples we've already read. Either it's just cause, or it's something cosmic, or it's through force or violence, or it's instinctual, something one just feels in the testicles. Mm. But here's an actual example of something concrete that Lewison claims is John's decision alone. Page 757. The decision to hire Brian, of course, was John's. This democracy had a leader and only he approved the moves. It was time for another of his big decisions. His first was to bring in Paul, and his second was to allow Paul to bring in George. I think it's slightly weird how Lewison doesn't say John's second big decision was to accept or allow George into the band. He writes, John allowed Paul to bring in George. Interesting distinction. Hmm. Because I think it's meant to imply that Paul's a middleman, like a middle manager of sorts. Oh, uh-huh. Like Mid-level management? Yeah. Mid-level, yeah. Like John's too high up the ladder to scout for new members, so he sort of gave that task to Paul. Anyway, here's how John put it. In 1980. I brought Paul into the original group, the choir men. He brought George in and George brought Ringo in. I had a say in whether they did join or not, but the only initial move I ever made was bringing Paul McCartney into the group. Okay, 
So according to John, he had a say. <laughs> Not final say even, just a say. Mm -hmm. And he also said the only initial move I ever made was with Paul McCartney. So that would appear to directly contradict that acquiring George and Brian are John's big decisions. Hmm. Well, maybe Lewison's assertion that only John approved the moves just means that John had to rubber stamp all the big moves. Well, maybe, but let's look at the beginning of that passage. The decision to hire Brian, of course, was John's. Mm. So where's the support for that? Yeah. Where is a single statement from Paul or George throughout their lives corroborating that? Did either of them ever say, well, we were allowed to voice our opinions to Leader Lennon? And he would generously listen to our feedback. But ultimately, every decision was John's alone. And only he approved all the moves. <laughs> did, did Paul or George ever say anything close to that? I can't think of a one. So that's a pretty bold claim. Uh, yeah, that is apparently contradicted by John. And not supported by the others. So if you're going to write that. You need to provide receipts. Uh, yeah, definitely. The Lenin quote Lewison uses on the following page is actually a mashup of two interviews. The first is from Hit Parader in 1975. John says, we certainly weren't naive. We were no more naive than Brian was. It was a mutual deal. You want to manage us? Okay, we'll let you. We allow you to. We weren't picked up off the street. We allowed him to take us. It was assessment. Well, that certainly does not suggest Lenin is making a presidential decision on his own. He says we six times. Yeah, as well as us. <laughs> and then from Lenin Remembers, Lewison adds this quote from John. I make a lot of mistakes character-wise. <laughs> oh, dear. But now and then I make a good one. And Brian was one. So there he's just saying his character assessment of Brian was sound. Even though so, this is the same interview where he says Brian robbed us. But whatever. Sure, John. Um, Lewison continues on page 758. It was plain that Brian had a fragile personality. But he was also intelligent, cultured a fellow reader and thinker, generous, smart, civilized, cool, edgy, arrogant, and most vitally, a risk taker. There was enough here for John to decide and to disregard Paul's games. In time, he'd subject Brian to a few tests of character to find out how he really worked. But for now, John had seen and heard enough. Right then, Brian, manage us. So the footnote here indicates that this is taken from a cellar full of noise. Here's the full passage. Brian wrote that he said to the Beatles in this meeting, Quite simply, you need a manager. 
Would you like me to do it? And then Brian says, no one spoke for a moment or two. And then John, in a low, husky voice, blurted, yes. <laughs> Paul, gazing in that disturbingly wide-eyed way, asked, will it make much difference to us? I mean, it won't make any difference to the way we play. And Brian answered, of course it won't. I'm very pleased anyway. And then we all sat and looked at one another for a moment or two, none of us really knowing what to say next. Then John broke the silence. Right then, Brian, manage us now. Where's the contract? I'll sign it. Okay. Well, that sounds like John was the spokesman on this decision. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't prove that he made the decision alone or that it was his exclusive right to do so. Yeah. Well, first of all, they all nodded. Paul asked a question. And mm -hmm. then there's a moment of silence, which seems like a pause to allow for any objections, which I think is customary when you're taking a final vote. Sure. So how does that support that this was John's decision alone? I don't know. That's not what I get from that section of a cellar full of noise also lewison wrote that paul is playing games apparently which john disregarded now we don't have time to unpack that here we'll discuss that in an upcoming episode but what lewison is saying is that john had enough reason to decide unilaterally and to disregard paul's objections and that he was correct to do so oh yeah oh yeah yeah, yeah. that's a hundred percent what we're supposed to take away from that I wonder what that will mean for the future. From page 732, Wooler announced John to audiences as the singing rage. He could hurt with his remarks and observations, Wooler said, of the many Lenin serrations that hung heavy in the air and left recipients and witnesses feeling grazed or uneasy, while Paul, George, and Pete would laugh in a nervous, apologetic way. John hardly ever said sorry, and the others hardly ever muttered it on his behalf. The victim would be left to laugh it off or lick his wounds. Wooler included John's new appellation in an Echo Classified, in which he had names for all of them. John Lennon, the Singing Rage. Paul McCartney, the Rockin' Riot. George Harrison, Sheik of Araby. And Pete Best, the Bashful Beat. And it was Wooler who created and put into print the first name order, John, Paul, George, and Pete. It scanned well and reflected the lineal imperative. The Beatles were John's group. He started it and was the leader. He brought in Paul, who introduced George, and then they got Pete. It was a hierarchy one had to keep in mind, especially in conversations. What does that even mean? Especially in conversations. Okay. Uh, I Okay. If it was such a lineal imperative, wouldn't it already have been created in everyone's minds? Why would Bob Wooler have created it? Well, we just got a mouthful about how the chain was a natural order. So first of all, how could a mortal create it? How could this man create this hierarchy? I think 
Lewison must mean he observed and put into print the first name order. And then we get a lot of attention and analysis paid to John's nickname, the Singing Rage, which Lewis and ties to John's habit of saying hurtful things. But we get none paid to the other guys. I mean, the Rocking Riot sounds pretty cool. But I guess we don't have time to talk about Paul. Secondly, the Beatles are not John's group. Yes, he started the Quarrymen. And yes, he was the leader, but he doesn't own the Beatles. They're not his group. No. This gets to the heart of why all of this leadership stuff is a problem. Because it underlies the belief and the assertion in this book that if the Beatles are John's property, if they are his intellectual property and he owns the Beatles, then that means that John can do whatever he wants with the Beatles. Mm-hmm. and that he's the only one who has final say we literally just read a passage where it says this democracy had a leader and only he approved the moves only john mm-hmm. there is one leader of the beatles at all times that means john is the owner of the beatles yeah and that that is a position ordained by nature so, yeah, that's a problem for anyone who ever disagrees with John about anything. Mm-hmm. And again, we are quoting Lewison directly from the text. Hierarchy, dominance, natural order, natural supremacy. Those are his words. Well, how come you say you will when you won't? You tell me you do, baby, when you don't. Let me know, honey, how you feel. Tell the truth now, is love real? Uh Uh-uh. Oh, honey, don't. Well, honey, don't. Not only is John the leader by being boss and dominating, but he is also beloved, revered, idolized, and worshipped. He's called a hero six times in TuneIn, and the way TuneIn reports Ringo joining the band cements John's preeminent position, not just in the hierarchy, but in everyone's hearts and minds. From page 1007, so Ringo has just joined the band. He is a newcomer to the Beatles. It was vital that the newcomer, Ringo, quickly acquire a sense of John Winston Lennon. The temperaments, crips, and the exquisitely or brutally facetious humor. Actually, though, the leader of the gang viewed Ringo with some sense of awe. Their patience with fools was similarly brittle, and their verbal dispatches likewise brusque. A little bit later, it continues that... It took only a little time for Ringo to revere, respect, and love John the same way Paul and George did. They were all close, but John was the glue, the one each had his best relationship with. Okay. I need some quotes for me to believe that all of the Beatles thought and felt and said that they loved John the best. Of all the others. I would like to see quotes from 
Paul, George, and Ringo saying that. Otherwise, you have no business saying that. Saying everybody felt really close to John is fine. But do they have their best relationship with him? Well, that's pretty weird because, I mean, first of all, it doesn't need to be competitive. No, it really doesn't. And I think George, Paul, and Ringo have plenty of glue amongst themselves. You could just as easily make the case that Paul is the glue because he does the most organizing and getting everybody together. Mm-hmm. And you could also argue that Ringo is the glue because he's mm-hmm. the easiest to get along with in the band. Mm-hmm. So without any actual quotes from George, Paul, or Ringo that they had their best relationship with John, why would you write that? And if you're going to imply that all the Beatles love John best, are you going to also tell us which Beatle John loved best? Well, great question. Also, George and Paul have temperaments and humor as well. Of course. Yes, and Paul is half the songwriting team and Ringo's rhythm section partner and roommate. So why would it be more vital for Ringo to acquire a sense of John? John Winston Lennon, because we need his full name there for some reason. (laughs) Why is that more vital for Ringo than it is for him to acquire a sense of George or Paul, his other new bandmates. Well, you know what? John called Paul a sexual gladiator once, <laughs> at least once, according to Ivor Davis. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, I think that's an interesting and somewhat revealing tidbit. But if I read a book that told me it was vital for Ringo to get a sense <laughs> of the sexual gladiator of the Beatles. Yeah, over I'd, and over. I'd be like, what's that mean? What, right? Why is this book weird? <laughs> what, would it be vital for Ringo to acquire a sense of James, Paul, McCartney, sexual gladiator? I mean, they are going to be rooming together. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to find out all about it. Yeah, right. Whether he wants to or not. <laughs> exactly. Let's backtrack now to earlier in the book to examine TuneIn's proposed theory of John's leadership style. This is a good example of Mr. Lewison using an unrelated incident as an example of John's leadership. Sometimes he does this with just normal, non-dominant behavior on John's part. And sometimes, like in this example, he uses another person's leadership as evidence of John's leadership. Sounds confusing, huh? Well, let us explain. So on page 229, John came to Nigel Wally's aid this time, but he wasn't always supportive. He'd often stand back and watch a situation naturally evolve. Wally remembers how Paul was critical of Colin Hanton's drumming, perhaps on Peggy Sue, and made dismissive remarks about him saying, Paul would smile to your face and be catty about you behind your back. Lewison continues, John did nothing, perhaps feeling Paul was doing him a favor. Paul was keen for the group to be always at their best musically and was trying to sharpen them up. And John took the leader's position of letting him get on with it. Okay. I would just like to float this as a possibility. 
for the sake of argument is it possible that john didn't like confrontation with paul (laughs) is it possible that even if he did disagree with paul he wouldn't choose to get into it with him why does this all have to be a master plan on john's part yes that john has deliberately delegated this task to paul yes and you know lewison theorizes that john is deliberately setting up situations that force paul to do dirty work but that isn't obvious to the naked eye and somehow isn't obvious to paul i guess either paul is too dumb to realize tom sawyer got him to paint the fence or (laughs) paul is happy to do the dirty work and be the bad guy in exchange for the pleasure and honor to serve under john but anyway that's john's leadership style lewison calls this benign maneuvering Mm. why is it benign by the way (laughs) well because it's john so i think it's safe to say that lewison is very resistant to writing or implying or hinting that paul is displaying leadership would you agree with that well obviously because shoehorning in john took the leader's position is not a natural writing choice i mean it's clear to me that he he has to finish the paragraph by declaring john leader yes yes later in this episode we will share several more examples of this awkward awarding of the leader trophy to john So no matter what Paul does, he's not a leader. Even if he does the thankless so-called dirty work and is willing to be the bad guy, is responsible for quality control, like even if the buck stops with Paul, John is still the leader because, in Lewison's actual words, remember, he just was. I mean, that's exhausting. Well, actually, Tunin tells us that John does the dirty work, not Paul. On page 1020, John is quoted as saying, when the dirty work came, I had to be leader. Okay, well, I'm sure John did sometimes do dirty work. Of course. But all the time? Right. I mean, just because John said it doesn't make it true. Of course not. And, you know, we should always look with a skeptical eye when someone in a group says i was always the one doing the work (laughs) and that that goes for paul as well by the way yeah of course everybody deserves to have at least a bare minimum of fact checking (laughs) especially if they're taking credit for something so yeah what's this quote in reference to well tune in presents it as being in reference to the Beatles refusing to release How Do You Do It after they had already agreed to record it. We've heard the story a million times about how they told George Martin they wanted to record their own songs and Jerry and the Pacemakers recorded the song How Do You Do It instead and went on to have a hit with it. But Lewis in here makes a very big deal out of how even though the story was told by everyone, including John, as a group decision, it was actually John who told George Martin no. 
Okay. I mean, I guess that matters. Definitely matters to Lewis anyway. Can you read the whole passage, please? Yep. Well, first off, there's quite a big buildup starting on page 1019 to this decisive moment. And then on page 1020, except there was one more thing they didn't want. How do you do it? Released. And someone had to tell George Martin right here, right now, last chance. The way it's mostly related, the Beatles went together to register their protest. All the quotes about it, and given the import, there are many, start with, we said. But George Martin is sure only John did the talking. Then there's John's quote, when the dirty work came, I had to be leader, John would say. Whatever the scene was, when it came to the nitty gritty, I had to do the speaking. As George Martin would describe it, John came to me and pleaded with me. He said, look, I think we can do better than this. Tuning continues. John himself remembered the moment in an interview 12 years later, saying we throughout. They forced us to do a version of how do you do it. We wouldn't let them put it out. We said we'd sooner have no contract than put that crap out. All the tantrums bit. We thought it was rubbish compared with love, love me do. <laughs> we thought ours had more meaning. Uh, then Tunin reports Paul's recollection. I suppose we were quite forceful, really, for people in our position. We said we had to live or die with our own song, Love Me Do. We knew it wasn't as catchy as How Do You Do It, but that was the way we had to go. We couldn't face the people back in Liverpool laughing at us. We were trying to keep the integrity a blues group with harmonica on our records. Okay, so Lewison's point is... Yeah, they all made the decision together. But John was the one who said the words to George Martin? Well, all the words. Only John talked, apparently. And his phrasing here, Lewison writes, There are many quotes that start with we, but... George Martin is sure only John did the talking. That to me makes it sound like George Martin came out at some point and said <laughs> and and said something to that effect. I need to correct like, the record. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, everyone says that they said they didn't like it, but I remember very well that only John did the talking. Now, Lewison gives two sources in the footnotes for this story. One of them we couldn't track down. It's a radio interview from the 80s. But the other is George Martin's Melody Maker interview from 1971. And here is what Martin said. I gave How Do You Do It to them to learn for the next session. When they turned up on the session, they said they didn't like it. They actually recorded it, but said they'd rather do one of their own numbers. I said that I hadn't heard anything of theirs that was any good. So <laughs> they did How Do You Do It. John sang the solo quite well, actually, but he came to me and pleaded with me, look, I think we can do better than this. If we write something better, can we do it? I said, yes, but you're turning down a hit. They quickly came back with please, please me. Uh, this also, by the way, contradicts something Lewison wrote on page 1019. 
he wrote that at the how do you do it session the recording process wasn't difficult just disagreeable they'd advanced to the brink of release a song they strongly did not want out nothing is known about if or how they showed this yet what but as we as we just read in the Melody Maker interview, George Martin said, I gave How Do You Do It to them to learn for the next session. When they turned up at the session, they said <laughs> they didn't like it. I mean, that's the that's the source that Lewison put in his footnote. Yeah, that's really weird. Why would he write that? Nothing right? is known about it except for the but, interview that you quoted from. Uh, yeah. That's really weird. Right? Yeah, so that means they recorded it reluctantly so that reinforces that they didn't like the song as opposed to like their rendition of it also can we talk for a second about john saying he was the one who always had to do the nitty-gritty dirty work yeah <laughs> i mean i'm not saying he never did like but clearly it depends on which type of dirty work we're talking about i think it's fair to say that john was often the spokesman yeah especially like in the early days and mm -hmm. sure that can be dirty work in certain situations and he was good at it like the kind of sexy dirty work yelling at people <laughs> blustering and <laughs> being stubborn and confrontational and loud yeah I, I expect that usually fell to john but that's not the only kind of dirty work there is well that's for sure there's also boring practical unglamorous thankless dirty work and from everything we know, I think that that was usually Paul's purview. Yeah, and there's also things like talking to bandmates about their performance. Right, giving criticism. Which people yeah. resent for the rest of their lives. Yeah, of I course. would call that dirty work for sure. It's Oh, it's it's the dirtiest work. I mean, is it really, are you really doing dirty work if you get to be everybody's best friend? all the time mm. <laughs> but here's another problem tune in says george martin is sure only john did the talking and then immediately gives us this quote from john when the dirty work came i had to be leader whatever the scene was when it came to the nitty-gritty i had to do the speaking so the reader might well think john is talking about how do you do it and love me do here? But we checked the footnote and the quote is from Leonard Remembers. And bizarrely, <laughs> the context is John and George confronting the Maharishi and leaving India. So nothing to do with love me do. Correct. Here's the full original quote. Yes, there was a big hullabaloo about him trying to rape me a pharaoh or somebody and trying to get off with a few other women and things like that. We went to see him after we stayed up all night discussing was it true or not true. When George started thinking it might be true, I thought, well, it must be true because if George started thinking it might be true, there's must be something in it. John, <laughs> your logic. Wow. Okay. So... We went to see Maharishi, the whole gang of us the next day, charged down to his hut, his bungalow, his very rich-looking bungalow in the mountains. And as usual, when the dirty work came, I was the spokesman. Whenever the dirty work came, I actually had to be leader. 
wherever the scene was, when it came to the nitty gritty, I had to do the speaking. And I said, we're leaving. Okay. So that's wild for a few reasons. <laughs> Number one, <laughs> half of the Beatles weren't even present. <laughs> Yeah. Only John and George were still in India at this point. So so John's example seems to be referring to the Beatles entourage plus George Harrison, okay, rather than the mm -hmm. actual Beatles per se. And yeah. secondly, George deliberately disputes this story in anthology. Not the part about John doing the talking, but the whole Maharishi controversy itself. Yeah. So John is bragging about doing the speaking for him and George on an issue George explicitly does not endorse. Mm -hmm. So all in all, it's a pretty bold choice on Lewison's part. And in the footnote for John's Lennon Remembers quote, Tunin says, Ringo's support expressed eloquently in the Beatles anthology, page 77. It's in the same footnote as the Lennon Remembers quote, which implied to Phoebe and me that Ringo expressed support eloquently for the Lennon Remembers quote. That Ringo must have corroborated that John always had to be the leader when it came to the nitty gritty dirty work. But again, we looked it up and that is not at all what Ringo says in Anthology. He's talking about Love Me Do. And he says nothing about John taking the lead. He says, I remember us all being ready to stand up for the principle of, we have written these songs and we want to do them. We had to make a really big stand on that. And the others made it more than I did because I was the new boy. I just <laughs> said, go on, lads, go get them. <laughs> I was still trying to find my place, but they were adamant, thank God about not wanting the song we'd been given. On reflection, this was a huge stance. And, incidentally, on that same page of anthology, George Martin says, In the end, I went with Love Me Do, but would still have issued How Do You Do It had they not persuaded me to listen to another version of Please Please Me. So they persuaded him. Okay, so to be clear, all of the Beatles consistently, repeatedly, throughout history, <laughs> describe this as a group decision, including John, okay? And that's weighed against George Martin's Melody Maker quote that John came to me and pleaded with me and he said, I think we can do better. Then Lewison took an unrelated quote from a questionable incident confronting the Maharishi to support his theory that John, I guess, spearheaded this decision. Again, Tunin also tells us that George Martin said this again in a 1982 radio interview, which we couldn't find, so we can't comment on it. But I assume the Melody Maker quote must be the stronger of the two because that's the one Lewison quoted directly mm -hmm. in fairness I think it's totally normal and fine to use a quote out of context like from another event so mm -hmm. long as it's on the same topic 
it's kind of a matter of editorial judgment whether or not it directly applies to the incident you're talking about but if it does i think it's fine yeah but i think this is a case where the usage is questionable yes well he's using it to refute the accepted story like he's using it as evidence that the yeah. all four beetles were inaccurate in saying that they all made this decision and refused and the weird thing is that it wasn't necessary to begin with i know who cares i mean i mean i know that we care because <laughs> we just spent 20 <laughs> minutes on this yeah but in our defense we, we only did that because lewison seems so oddly attached to this interpretation <laughs> and we think it's very questionable the way he went about trying to support it so it took us a while to unravel the whole thread here for you yeah well each time we went to track down a footnote we found something else that was weird yeah but what we keep coming back to is like why didn't he just leave this alone like why right. couldn't this just have been a group decision as all the Beatles said it was it's not that he's saying something that isn't true it's just that he made such a big thing out of it so that's what I don't understand like you could have just left it as a group decision you could have still left in George Martin's quote that says John came to me and just left it at that why was it necessary to present George Martin's quote as if you were revealing the real truth exactly you know George Martin saying that John had a conversation with him does not refute this being a group decision right so why did you have to frame it as if that's what you were doing? You were refuting this group decision yeah. bullshit story, you know? Like right. you're blowing the lid off of that one. Guess what, readers? John's the secret mastermind behind every so-called group decision. Mm. I guess this is a pivotal moment. So it's another notch in John's belt if he took the lead on it if you're trying to make the case that john was always the leader and decision maker then mm -hmm. yeah you have to make a big deal out of this it's like he can't he can't take his foot off the gas for one second yeah yeah but you know what there are similar group stories like for instance the beatles refusing to play to segregated audiences although larry kane is sure it was paul mccartney who put his foot down so i'm sure lewison will make sure paul mccartney gets full credit for this display of moral leadership now regarding john saying he always did the dirty work obviously i'm okay with representing john's point of view with a quote like this yeah even if he's being hyperbolic I'm sure there were moments where he felt like, why does it always end up being me doing this stuff? Mm -hmm. And you know what? I'm sure Paul felt like that too. Well, and also I'm remembering that Paul said that, you know, if they, if they were being pressured to do something they didn't want to do, some promotional, whatever. Yes. It would yeah. usually, and that none of them wanted to do it, but it would usually be George who said, no, I'm not doing that. Yes. And he said that that was nice that like was helpful was, yes that was helpful yeah they appreciated that yes or at least paul did yes yeah george so, yeah. would put his foot down 
And then, so they would be, well, I, well, what can we, I, George put his foot down, what can we say? Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, so George is willing to be the bad guy sometimes. Yeah. We're now going to share a few interesting passages from TuneIn that describe Paul's emerging role in the band. One is from very early in their partnership and involves the first known photograph of John and Paul together. From page 219. In images of the quarrymen before Paul joined, they're all wearing different clothes. In the first photo of the group with Paul, they have a uniform look and a sharp one at that. White shirts with black bootlace ties and black trousers. And John and Paul only are also wearing jackets on top, white or cream. It's Paul's white sports coat and something similar John has managed to acquire. This was undoubtedly Paul's doing, reaching back to his experience at Butlins in 1954 when he saw how a singing group in matching gear claimed everyone's attention. He'd brought the thinking early to John, and John had bought it. And something else is compelling about this quarryman photo. Although it's John's group, new boy Paul is not at the back with Colin or Len, or to the side like Eric. He's up front with John. Lennon and McCartney are clearly the front line of the quarrymen. The group is the two of them and three others. Uh, not to split hairs, but that certainly sounds like co-leadership to me. From page 240. It was now spring 1958 and the quarrymen's sound was changing. Skiffle was out and Buddy was in, along with Little Richard, Jerry Lee, Carl, and Elvis. Paul saw to it that the addition of a lead guitarist and pianist meant a period of proper rehearsal, the like of which they hadn't had for some time. The obvious venue was his house, because Duff could use Jim Mack's piano. Okay, wait a second. It's now the spring of 1958. Uh, Skiffle was out. But earlier, TuneIn went out of its way to make sure that we knew that the quarrymen before Paul joined was really rock and roll all the way. Don't you remember that? I do remember that. Yeah, I, I am confused about the skiffle to rock timeline. This section definitely seems to suggest that Paul's presence and influence focused the quarrymen towards rock and permanently away from skiffle. Also, Paul is conducting band practices, or at least... Yeah, right? demanding and scheduling band practices sounds like leadership to me yes they are a band <laughs> so on page 691 about the early beatles legal conflicts with Allen williams after he uh, was no longer their manager tune in reads ray mcfall advised them to retain a solicitor suggesting charles d monroe and Paul set up a Thursday appointment as he'd be in town anyway for the cavern. His leather suit must have shocked in such conservative <laughs> surroundings, 
But while Monroe's dress code was strictly pinstripe, he still agreed to represent them. And it wasn't necessary for all the Beatles to fight Williams. One would do. The role fell naturally to Paul. And after gathering relevant documents from the others, he returned to Monroe's office on Saturday the 29th to do his bit. Then it describes Paul's affidavit. Why did the role naturally fall to Paul? Because uh, he was in town? They were all in town. Was Paul doing solo shows at the cavern? Um, I don't think so. Okay, so it's not, it has nothing to do with him being in town. Okay, but whatever, putting that aside, why did the role naturally fall to Paul? I would think it would be natural for it to either fall to the manager or the leader. Hmm. And it's not well, like interesting. Paul's a lawyer or something. Like if, if they had a lawyer in the band, maybe sure. you'd say, okay, fine. Is it because Paul is the best writer? Is that why he would uh, write an affidavit or give testimony? Is he the most eloquent of the band? No, no. How could you suggest such a thing? We've been told six times that John is articulate or literate. Okay, so is it because Paul is the smartest? Like, I'm just trying I... to figure out why it naturally fell to Paul. Is he the, is he the most honest? Is he the most truthful? Well, definitely not. Okay, so... Yeah, I mean, it seems like the sort of thing the leader of a group does to me. Um, Lewison writes, the document ended equally boldly. If necessary, we are quite prepared to defend these proceedings, and we are not afraid of any bad publicity Mr. Williams may give us. So is it because Paul is the boldest and the bravest? No. no. Why do you keep saying these things? Wash out your mouth with soap. I'm just really trying to figure out what this means. It's not even like the role fell to Paul. He says it naturally fell to Paul. Hmm. So Paul handles all legal matters, all paperwork, all... So Paul's the de facto manager at this point. Is that right? Is that what's happening? Does Paul have a history of managing the band? You mean like writing letters to get them bookings and stuff? Yeah. Yeah, he does actually. When there's a vacuum in management, it is customary for Paul to step up and do that work? Uh-huh. I see. So it would be strange to criticize him for doing that? Since the Beatles have always relied on him to do that work? Is that what you're saying? Is that what you're saying, Daphne? I would never dare. <laughs> to suggest such heresy. Now, several people have spoken on the record about Paul's displays of leadership in the early days. Here's a quote from Colin Hanton from the Spitz book that supports the idea of co-leadership. Spitz writes, it was John and Paul who brought in all the new material. They assigned each musician his part, chose the songs, sequenced the sets. They literally dictated how rehearsals went down. The rest of us hadn't a clue as far as arrangements went. 
and they seemed to have everything right there at their fingertips, which was all right with me because their ideas were good and I enjoyed playing with them. From the same book, here's Eric Griffiths. They were on the same indefinite path, says Eric Griffiths, who sensed that their bonding signaled his undoing. <laughs> Once they got together, things became serious and fast. The band was supposed to be a laugh. Now they devoted all their attention to it and in a more committed way than any of us really intended. And here's Colin Hanton again. The band quickly became John and Paul. It was always John and Paul, Paul and John. Even when someone didn't turn up to rehearse, John and Paul would be at it, harmonizing or arranging material, practicing either at Aunt Mamie's or at Paul's house. So there you are. Those are original quarrymen talking about the very early days of the quarrymen that seem to support co-leadership at least from their point of view mm -hmm. and as bandmates their opinions would matter we also have these three examples these are all in reference to the hamburg period astrid tells hunter davies paul was always friendly he was by far the most popular with the fans he always did the talking and announcing and the autograph bit. Most people among the fans looked upon him as the leader. John, of course, was the leader. He was far and away the strongest. I don't mean physically. I mean as a personality. Okay, so Astrid is attesting to John's charisma and leadership within the group, but also acknowledging that Paul was leader, or at least perceived leader, on stage and with the public. Yeah, which are two very important things for a band. Yeah, exactly. Distinct roles. Alan Williams said in 2005 that in Hamburg, Paul was beginning to challenge John for the leadership of the group. As we've already discussed, John also tells Hunter Davies in 1967, Paul was telling me that he and I used to have rows in Hamburg about who was the leader. I can't remember them. It had stopped mattering by then. So those insights just add a little nuance to this whole leadership debate. However, none of them are presented or, or paraphrased in TuneIn. Instead, Correct. as we have shown you, TuneIn prefers to frame leadership as extremely black and white. Yes, cut and dry. And it's not. Yeah. And by the way, it doesn't need to be a matter of Paul was actually the leader or John wasn't the real leader. And here's proof. No, not at all. It's possible for nuance to exist and for Paul to show leadership in this area or in this instance. Yes. It can be a thing where they trade off from time to time, depending on each other's respective strengths. That's how partnerships work. Yes. Thank you. That's how marriages work. Paul was keen for the group to be always at their best musically and was trying to sharpen them up. And John took the leader's position of letting him get on with it. What does that mean? How is that the leader's position? Why can you just not say that musically is where Paul immediately showed leadership? Yes, immediately and permanently. How does that hurt John? Why can't John be the leader of the group, but Paul be the musical leader? Why can't John be the leader of the group, 
most of the time. Mm. Mm-hmm. But not all of the time. No one is the leader all of the time. Yeah. No one's anything all the time. <laughs> it's just <laughs> ridiculous. <laughs> so we've given some examples, not all, just a few, of ways Paul displayed leadership in the band, while strangely not being credited with leadership in TuneIn. Now, for contrast, let's circle back to the even stranger pattern in TuneIn we discussed earlier, <laughs> which is John being credited with leadership when he is not, in fact, leading. TuneIn's theory is that anytime someone else displays leadership, usually Paul, but as we mentioned, also George, it's actually John allowing them to do the work of the leader, which is actually vicarious leadership on john's part yes every time and by the way we're not criticizing john for slacking or anything like as we said in shoulder to shoulder it would be exhausting for john to always have to be the one in control we don't expect him to be leading all the time right and i think it is to john's credit that he didn't like fight them on these things <laughs> yeah but <laughs> but it is unfair to deny Paul and George's own agency here. Mm -hmm. The fact right. that they chose to take the initiative in very meaningful ways is no doubt part of why the Beatles were so successful. Mm -hmm. Division of labor and leadership is a very, very potent tool. And for the most part, the Beatles wielded it with remarkable expertise from the very beginning. That's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And exciting. So here are two more examples of what TuneIn deems John's leadership style. From page 209 about Pete leaving the quarrymen. TuneIn reads... John had a way of making it plain if he felt someone wasn't up to scratch musically. In Pete Shotton's case, he engineered a blazing argument while they were out riding their bikes. Then, when the group played at a private party, they both got completely drunk and John smashed the washboard over Pete's head. Its center section was pushed right out, leaving it framed around Shotton's neck. That solves that then, Pete the leader declared i'm sorry but okay so john has a issue with pete's performance at the band so he engineers a blazing argument while they're riding their bikes that's passive aggressive exactly that's so ridiculous and then he solves the problem through violence <laughs> yeah yeah that's not making it plain that he has a musical problem that's not being able to confront the fact that he has a musical problem neither of those are good leadership <laughs> exactly exactly the leader declared what maybe he's just a teenager trying to feel his way through life like everyone else which obviously is fine of course all right, and here's another one where George's exercise of control and leadership in the group is, again, attributed to John. On page 243. 
George Harrison had walked into the quarrymen and coolly wondered, what are all these people doing here? He would say, it was daft. They had no proper drummer, but about 18 guitarists (laughs) and people coming along for one night and not again, who didn't seem to be doing anything. So I, George Harrison, said, let's get rid of them. I conspired to get rid of Griff. All right, George. (laughs) I know. Kicking ass, taking names. Yeah. These people are useless. Cool story, cool quote from George Lewis and immediately writes, however, it says a great deal for John's leadership style, a kind of benign maneuvering, that he'd allowed Paul to suggest the addition of George and Duff, and now he let the new and youngest boy, a bloody kid, wield the axe over a founder member, John's old Quarry Bank school friend. How did John get George to make that recommendation? Unknown. Wait, is the benign maneuvering so advanced that we we don't even know how he did it? Perhaps. There are the expansive ruminative excerpts we read earlier, uh, which focus specifically on leadership. But there are also subtle, or sometimes not so subtle, reminders of John's leadership, seeded throughout TuneIn, sprinkled in often unnecessarily or even awkwardly, in a way that to us suggests a disproportionate preoccupation on the author's part. For example, there's Lewison's fondness for the moniker Leader Lenin. Mm. On page 170, we're told that most of the Quarrymen's rehearsals were held at Leader John's mother's house. Page 238. With Lenin as leader, humor within the ranks was crucial. On page 564, a 1960 dispute in Hamburg with a club owner is described as another of those moments when all eyes turned to Leader Lenin. And on page 1187, quote, as Leader Lenin would explain... We were the best fucking group in the goddamn world, and believing that is what made us what we were. There's also John's leadership of his peers, including the early quarrymen. On page 71, John's chosen friends were also intelligent, Ivan exceptionally so, and eager to follow their leader wherever he took them. On page 96, tune in uh paraphrases michael hill john and p shotton's mutual friend lewison writes michael hill says that though john and pete were close john was definitely the leader on page 107 john led the boys through rousing sing-alongs of recent american made british hits john is also called the leader by pete best and a london writer named june harris additionally bob wooler comments from page 711 that Lennon had an attitude, and taking his lead from Lennon, McCartney could be similar. And then there are all the casual asides that just don't need to be there. <laughs> we are going to show mercy right now and skip over those. <laughs> Suffice to say, it is striking how Tunin resists using the words leader, lead, or led for Paul mm. McCartney's role in the band. Hmm. Now, in one instance, John and Paul led the quarrymen through some rock in Skiffle, 
but Paul himself is never taking the lead in arranging a harmony or in contacting potential venues or by announcing the songs during performances, even though he did all those things. Mm. Well, he did once lead his brother into trouble, though, didn't he? Yes, that's true. And Lewison also quotes a fan, Pat Moran, on page 493, who seems to answer the question, who was the leader, by reporting that both John and Paul were the Beatles' leaders in her eyes. She said, John was the leader. He used to talk to Paul, and then they'd play something. But Paul was also the leader in a way, because he was very much part of it. Certainly, it was between Paul and John as to who took the lead. Okay, okay, so I know that we said we were going to skip the casual asides, but I just, I do, <laughs> I'm going to read too. I, I love how on page 521, we hear that John had the broadest shoulders and sharpest elbows. The leader bagged the best bed in the marginally better room. <laughs> That's fun. And then <laughs> there's my personal favorite. A footnote on page 1262, in which Lewis and opines, the notion something will turn up, or words to that effect, was ever John Lennon's thinking, perhaps inspired by Micawber in David Copperfield, which he'd read. The leader led, the others adopted his attitude. What's that a footnote for, Daphne? Great question. It is a footnote for a Paul quote from page 502. Tune in reads, Paul remembers their attitude at such times. He would say, we had this way of getting over problems. Someone would say, well, what are we going to do now? And we'd say, well, something will happen. And the four of us believed that. Nobody would ever go, what do you mean something will happen? That's no answer. We'd go, yeah, something <laughs> will happen. There was this, like, faith. <laughs> so Paul does not say, you know, in this quote that it was always John who would say something will happen. I've only ever heard this story from Paul. He's talked about it at least twice. Okay. I mean, that's a pretty vague thing. Yeah. His theory is plausible yeah and this might sound minor and maybe it is but can we revisit what lewison wrote <laughs> he said the leader led and the others adopted his attitude so he is attributing this deep faith that all the beatles had in their group this completely illogical borderline delusional spiritual <laughs> belief <laughs> That they had that they were gonna make it and he's saying it originates from john alone but the story comes from paul the famous optimist and lewison provides no evidence that john was the singular source of this faith this very important foundational profound faith in themselves that was kind of delusional yet beautiful and crucial to their success and their personal bond and esprit de corps. So I think they all deserve credit for that. Mm -hmm. Rather than to be dismissed in a single line as the others 
adopting John's leading leadership lead. But didn't the Beatles themselves agree that John was the leader? Well, let's talk about that. On page 659, Tunin explains how Polydor had the Beatles write out their little biographies. And Tunin comments, These documents are fascinating and revealing on many levels. John, George, and Pete wrote theirs in capitals. Paul used the flowing handwriting he knew counted among his attributes. Pete alone wrote his in the third person, and the difference in John and Paul's characters is crystallized in two sentences. Paul wrote in his bio, Songs written with John Lennon, around 70 songs. And John wrote, Written a couple of songs with Paul. <laughs> <laughs> their characters are crystallized in these two sentences? Uh, I guess. Okay. Tune in continues. Also here, laid out, plain graphite on paper, the 20-year-old who called himself John W. Lennon, leader, stated explicitly what he wanted from life. Ambition, period, to be rich. The question I have is that Lewison has described these documents as being fascinating and revealing on many levels, and apparently it included a question about what their life ambition was, but only John's answer to that question is reported. Like, what, what did the others put as their life's ambition? Even though he, he doesn't take the time to report the others' life's ambitions, he does report that John wrote himself in as the leader. Which brings us to our next example on page 1078, reporting an article on the Beatles in Dance News magazine in November of 1962. Tune in reads, they were first quoted in a national publication. John was identified in print as leader and founder of the group which they'd agreed to say if anyone asked. Interestingly, there's a footnote that goes with that. On page 1350, the footnote reads, John told Ray Coleman a year later, people kept coming up and asking who the leader was. We said, nobody. They said, there must be a boss. So the other said to me, you started the whole thing. You're the leader. That's the end of John's quote, and Lewison opines, No reminder was necessary, but here was Beatle policymaking in action. Using that quote is kind of hilarious because John is literally saying, you yeah. know, the establishment press is always <laughs> saying, oh, it's unacceptable. There has to be a yes. boss. And so right. we were like, okay, then fine. 
then if we have to have one, then we will right. say John. Yes, exactly. He's he's articulating how the necessity for a leader label was pushed on them by the media, basically. Mm-hmm. Who <laughs> wouldn't take we have no leader as an answer? <laughs> right. What are you communists? <laughs> There must be a leader. Okay. In order to get to the next question. Fine, John. Are you comfortable? Do you trust us now? <laughs> Let us assure you that in the manner of true masculine people, we exactly. do have a hierarchy. So the actual policy they're making is that they have no leader. Yes. But if you need to write something on the form, you can just put John yes like he just explained that and yet i think tunin misses this point over and over again now to be very clear yes many people are quoted in tunin as saying john was the leader however we would like to make the point again that lewison chose what existing quotes to use and also whom to interview personally, what to ask them, and how much of what they said to include in his book. On our website, we have posted a list of the many quotes Lewison provides, which contain a statement about John being the leader. And it's worth asking, do we think all of these interviewees spontaneously volunteered this opinion? Do we think that this was something at the forefront of all of their minds that they really wanted to make sure they got on the record. They got the message from Lewis and Nick, may I interview you? And their counter was, will you let me tell you who the leader was? And will <laughs> yeah, you make yes. sure to put it in your book, even though you've got 10 other people saying the same thing? Oh, yes. Otherwise, I have lots of insights. No dice. First of all, John was the leader. Jot that down. <laughs> or is it possible that Lewison himself made a point of asking his interviewees point blank who they thought the leader was. We don't know whether he did because we don't have access to his notes or his raw interviews. But obviously, what questions are asked makes a difference to what answers you get. Yeah, well, the answer to who was the leader of the Beatles is likely to always elicit the same response it's like a trivia question if you ask people who wrote the ballads they're going to say paul right Every, everyone's going to answer george if you ask who the quiet beetle was mm -hmm. that doesn't mean john didn't write love songs or george couldn't be outspoken so asking a fan who the leader was isn't particularly meaningful to me Right. What is more meaningful to me are the accounts from Eric Griffiths, Colin Hanton, Alan Williams, Pete Shotton, Cynthia, Paul McCartney, and John Lennon that paint a different, or at the very least, more nuanced picture, but that were omitted from TuneIn. I think the bigger question in this leadership discussion 
is what do the Beatles mean to each other, to the audience, to popular culture in the 60s, as well as popular culture throughout the ensuing decades? One of the revolutionary things about the Beatles is that they were a cooperative unit. They did work together. They did share ideas. They went with the best idea and they tried to have unanimous consent on everything. Of course, there were power imbalances from time to time and there were conflicts. Of course. But for the most part, they worked together incredibly well. What's especially incredibly frustrating is that on page 946, Lewison even points out this special quality of the Beatles. Mm -hmm. He writes, George Martin's decision to accept them this way as a leaderless unit was correspondingly a first and precisely what they'd hoped for. And Brian had been trying to help them find. Yeah, so, okay. Which is it? Exactly. Is it important that the Beatles are leaderless? I think it is. Yes. And yeah, it's good that Tunin acknowledges here that they were, in some way or other, leaderless. But as we've shown, that's an anomaly. John's leadership is much, much more emphasized in the rest of the book. I mean, exponentially so. Well, this is the only mention I can think of. It's the only time they get called leaderless. Yeah. Tunin defines John and Paul as equals once. Once in the prologue, and then never again. So that one quote does not outweigh the rest of the book. It just doesn't. John recognized Paul as his equal on day one when he thought, in his own words, he's as good as me. In 1970, from Lennon Remembers, hardly the warmest moment in Lennon-McCartney's relationship, John declared their equal partnership as the model of the Beatles. Rather than an individual thing, he said, we went for the strongest format of equals. We're going home. I had a group. I was the singer and the leader. I met Paul and I made the decision whether to have him in the group or not. Was it better to have a, a guy who was better than the people I had in, obviously, or not? To make the group stronger or to let me be stronger? And that decision was to let Paul in to make the group stronger. Instead of going for an individual thing, we, we went for the strongest format, you know, and for equals. Now, Tunin uses this quote, but it curiously omits the line about them being equals. Here's what Lewison wrote on page 201. The quandary for John Lennon was whether or not to invite Paul McCartney to join his group. He then quotes John as saying, Was it better to have a guy who was better than the people I had in, obviously, or not? to make the group stronger or to let me be stronger. And my decision was to let Paul in to make the group stronger. 
dot 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 and then he switches into a partial quote from the hunter davies book quoting john it went through my head that i'd have to keep him in line if i let him join but he was good so he was worth having he also looks like elvis i dug him as john explained in 1967 to hunter davies I was very impressed by Paul playing 20 Flight Rock. He could obviously play the guitar. I half thought to myself, he's as good as me. I'd been kingpin up to then. Now I thought, if I take him on, what will happen? It went through my head that I'd have to keep him in line if I let him join. But he was good. So he was worth having. He looked like Elvis. I dug him. Now I've seen this interpreted and no doubt this is how Mr. Lewis interprets it as John saying, I'm going to have to keep Paul in line so that I may remain kingpin. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's what Lewis is basing his natural supremacy line on. John knew that if Paul ever challenged his natural supremacy, he'd see him off. Yeah, which is not at all my interpretation of this. No, nor mine. To me, John is saying, I'd been kingpin up to then, right? I was mm -hmm. king of the hill, top of the heap. <laughs> if I take him on, what's going to happen? He might knock me off the top. Right. So I have to make sure that doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. But he's worth it. Yeah. because look at him <laughs> i mean he's awesome yeah so what's more important to me being king of the hill right or the two of us being kings of the world exactly am i gonna step up and take this to the next level even though it means sharing the throne or am i just gonna be a big fish in a small pond all my life all in all like, I definitely think there's appeal to being the only one and getting all the glory and, you know, mm -hmm. being the big shot or whatever. Yes, but especially if you have the insecurities that John did. Exactly. But the trade-off is totally worth it. Like, he made the best yeah. decision of his life, right? Absolutely. I mean, not only are they more powerful together, but paul adores him so he mm -hmm. he is loved when he's with paul well and he says nothing about and if he had stepped out of line i would have punched him in the face and sent him on his way yeah and i definitely think the the moral of this is that creative greatness is more important than being the top dog and it's strange to me that a book which claims in the prologue to be proceeding from the notion that John and Paul are equals. It's strange that when it's presented with a perfect opportunity to quote John as saying they were equals from day one, and that that was a deliberate choice on their part. He said, we went for the strongest format that Lewison cuts that part of the quote out. And he also cuts out from the Hunter Davies quote, the part where John says, he's as good as me. And I had been kingpin up till then. Suggesting, in my opinion, 
but I knew I wouldn't be anymore. Right. I mean, I think John is saying that's clearly the choice. Do mm -hmm. I remain kingpin? Or do I take on an equal partner? Is it better to rule in hell than to serve in heaven? Not to get all <laughs> Milton on everyone. This is a big step. Like, this is important. Like you say, this is John choosing creativity and quality yes. over his own ego. Yes. A little scary. Of course. Exciting. Nerve-wracking. Exciting. Yeah. <laughs> We're shifting into another gear. Well, it's Saturday night and I just got paid. I fool about money, don't try to save. My heart says go, go, have a time. Saturday night, baby. Okay, my darling Daphne. Are you ready for the big question? Why does this matter? Ooh. To the question we posed in the intro. If John was the leader, why shouldn't he be called the leader? What is the big deal? <laughs> Honestly, there's nothing inherently wrong with the label of leader. It's more about what TuneIn suggests the rights and privileges of the leader are. Those are much more subjective and much more open to interpretation. Does it entitle the leader to always get his way? Or to unilaterally make big decisions for the entire band, like personnel, management, etc.? TuneIn argues that it does. It argues that point explicitly. Big decisions are John's to make, of course. This democracy had a leader, and only he approved the moves. And it argues that point implicitly, by using grandiose absolutes and language bordering on the religious. John has natural supremacy, is worshipped by his grateful followers, and his dominance is an imperative, the one essential key to understanding the Beatles forever and ever. Amen. However, as John and Paul themselves tell it, the Beatles is a story of commitment and compromise. Lennon and McCartney shared a dream and married their names and fortunes together. And for the many years they worked as partners, it was extraordinarily successful. Their specific brand of collaboration has proven a model of prolific creative relationships that is still being studied today. However, rather than showcasing this union as the core driving force of the Beatles, TuneIn instead pays it some lip service and then opts to consistently emphasize and aggrandize John's singular leadership. If John as leader is the natural order, which Paul has to accept, what will this mean for the future? As we all know, as the band progresses through the 60s, Paul will not only grow as a songwriter, but will become increasingly prolific and celebrated, and leadership will ebb and flow between him and John. Will that be framed as unnatural, undesirable, even destructive? Listeners, 
what version of the Beatles do you believe in? Do you believe that the Beatles were a union, a brotherhood, a family? That they truly believed in the things they espoused? Friendship, love, equality? Or do you believe the Beatles is the story of one very special supreme leader's necessary and natural dominance? More importantly, should that innate hierarchy be the one essential, definitive version of the Beatles story? We know what version we believe in. And we know what version TuneIn believes in. Listeners, you can decide for yourselves. And with that, we've hit the halfway mark of fine-tuning, Phoebe. Well, almost. What, half of 11 is not five? Almost, babe. Five times two is ten, so you're, you're very close, though. Thank you. Mm-hmm. So what's next, Daphne? I'm so glad you asked me that. Next up is jealousy. Ooh, who's jealous? Well, you're going to have to tune in to find out. But uh, someone in this book has a real problem with jealousy. Ooh, sounds juicy. Yeah. I can't wait until next time. Want to discuss fine-tuning with other ACOM listeners? Got thoughts, questions, disagreements? Marriage proposals? You can find and follow us on social media. We also have a discussion group on the old Facebook that listeners can request to join. You can also email us at acompodcast at gmail.com. Send links to your friends, kids, grandparents. Tell that cutie at the record store about us. Mmm, what a great icebreaker. Acom will improve your sex life, is what we're saying. Is what we're saying. (laughs) I mean, I can testify to that personally. (laughs) Nothing sets the mood like a good 12-hour Acom (laughs) podcast series. I tell you what. (laughs) Some candles, a little wine, and two ladies yelling. (laughs) 